If a user accidentally clicks on a phishing message because the computer lags, no, you don't blame them. But on the other hand, if a user brings in a USB drive to listen to music, or in one case I had to deal with, a user was a security guard who wanted to watch movies late at night. So he downloaded software that essentially bypassed the virtual private network of the system and downloaded a virus that ruined the security software. Yes, you blame them to the hills. Hello and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian. We're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor, or visitors in this case, who are definitely not your average guests, to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity, to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Brian, when was the last time you made a mistake at work? Um, I'm not sure. It was probably today sometime. Uh, although, thankfully, I don't think it would have been anything too serious, I, I hope. Oh, well, we're only human, even you, Brian. So today we're talking about just that, human error and how to prevent it, especially as it relates to cybersecurity. Indeed, and our guests today are Ira Winkler, an award-winning CISO, a top-rated keynote speaker and best-selling author of Security Awareness for Dummies, and also Dwayne Nickel, our own cybersecurity awareness training expert. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thank you. <laughs> Great. Thanks for having me. So first things, Ira, how would you describe what you do to someone at a dinner party? So that's, I mean, that's an interesting question because there's different things that I essentially do. And frankly, even though I wrote security awareness for dummies, it's sort of like, I want to say that I make organizations more resilient. And so Dwayne, what would you say about that? How would you describe what you do to somebody at a dinner party? So I'm lucky. I only have one of the many pillars that a CISO has to worry about. And, and one of them, luckily for me, is awareness training. Um, I mean, if I had to explain what I, did, what I do at a dinner party to somebody, I would say fundamentally it's trying to make people feel more involved and included and behind the notion of a cybersecurity awareness culture at a business. I mean, it's, it's an, ever, an everlasting battle trying to get a user who's got other daily responsibilities to be, you know, kind of invested in a company's, in a normal awareness trading program and using content and engaging ways in kind of getting to that end user, you really do see the difference um, on the measurable results um, that do come from a, a very engaging program. And so, Dwayne, from your experience, how would you say, or what are some of the ways that we can best train and enable employees at an organization? Well, I think fundamentally, it always starts off with the content, right? I mean, the days of, you know, compliance-based training that are 45 to 60 minutes long that, you know, take forever to get through are once a month and are never ending or appeasingly never ending is just genuinely the way in which you got to try and get a user's attention from the get-go and keep them engaged for as long as you potentially can based on the human retention mechanism, which is about five minutes or three minutes for me in most, in most cases. But once you've got that user's attention, you know, that, that old way of compliance-based led training becomes a lot more 
a lot more laser focused and people can take away the learnings in a far more you know, easier to understand fashion and then hopefully retain some of that information with some of the humorous ways in which you can engage them. So I think content is definitely um, you know, right up there with probably a primary objective um, for, a, for a program. I think second of all is also understanding which users need appropriate training. And that is something that a lot of administrators try and get under, um, you know, get under wraps quite quickly in their program. Like who needs more training, who needs less training, and then appropriately focus the resources on each of those two populations. And I read Dwayne's gone into a huge amount of detail there as a kind of kickoff. If you had to sum that up, um, you know, maybe explain it to a novice, how would you go about doing that? Is, is there a simple way to really just talk about awareness training that doesn't actually lead us down sort of in, in, into sort of some dark alley, which is kind of the wrong way of thinking about awareness training? Well, frankly, I, sorry, I'm trying to be diplomatic, but I see here's the thing about awareness training. Awareness is your there's when you're an awareness professional, your goal, ironically, is not awareness. Your goal is improved behaviors. And maybe an educational content is one way to do that. But there are so many other potential ways to change and improve behaviors beyond just providing information, because there's, there's like a concept, the information action fallacy. And the information action fallacy, it, well, B.J. Fogg originated the term, he's a behavioral scientist. And it's sort of like, I use the example of, like right now, I'm about 10 pounds, give or take overweight, maybe 15. And I know how to lose that weight. I am well aware how to lose the weight. I need to eat less and exercise more. That's the problem. A lot of people know they should be eating less and exercising more. It's not necessarily awareness that's the key to improving user behavior. Awareness is one aspect of it, but you have to start looking as an awareness professional on what are the other aspects to overall improve behavior. The awareness program has to be, okay, what are the behaviors I want to improve? That's number one. Number two is what are the best delivery mechanisms to improve those behaviors? And then I should also mention, um, you also need to define what are the appropriate metrics to see if you're achieving your goals. And those are really the three components of what an awareness program should be. Okay, no, but I think you make some really good points there. I mean, Dwayne, um, do you agree with Ira? I do. And I mean, user behavior is literally at the, the kind of core of what we're trying to do, like as an awareness training fraternity. Like I know awareness training, again, I, I, is not the right and the most appropriate term. I hear lots of analysts calling it lots of different things. Some say human risk quantification, which is more complex than a doctorate in theoretical astrophysics. But what I, what I tend to believe, where I, I bang on agree with Ira is if you're not measuring user behavior and just throwing awareness training at users, you are missing out on probably the most insightful way of how to understand um, your learner base um, and, and how to appropriately action anything you learn from that, 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 that data set. But fundamentally, if you look at education as the key and then try and observe the objectives that a, an organization typically undertakes to try and improve upon, which is, you know, measurable user behaviors. You know, there's, there's a plethora of information that you can go through. There's a plethora of information you can start, um, you, can start uh, you know, analyzing. And over time, if the program is as robust as it needs to be, all the metrics should, should display, you know, increases or decreases where appropriate in user behavior. 
And from there, if you've got documented ways in, in what to do post the implementation of the program, you're going to have a pretty resilient way to understand where your users need more assistance. And I think over communication with that is key and obviously hard to remediate um, more intricately. I think you've raised some really interesting points there, Dwayne. And Ira, from your perspective and from your experience, what kind of corporate environments do you find foster the, the best adoption of awareness training or, or that change in behavior? So there's the concepts of shoulds versus musts, and most companies should all over themselves. And what happens is they basically are telling people, and here's one thing I really hate about what awareness people are told to do, because most of the time they talk about marketing. We are marketing people. We're getting the message out and so on. Marketing, and we should take lessons from marketing, you know, marketing science, whatever you want to call it. And marketing is a science and it's actually a critical science, but you need to understand the distinction. A good marketing program, and I'll use my US example because that's where I'm from. A good marketing program would be trying to get people like 2% of people to switch from Coke to Pepsi. And they spend millions of dollars or billions of dollars to try to get 2% of people to switch from Coke to Pepsi. And they do that by targeting individuals. They leave out large portions of population. Some people, they say, this is the older population. They're not gonna drink sweet sodas. They will drink tonic water or whatever. And they leave out large percentages of the population to target their messaging. Now, there are lessons to learn about this, but saying you're a marketer and marketing good awareness is a bad example because of what marketing actually is, which are making small but profitable changes in consumer behavior, for lack of a better term. We don't need to make small but profitable changes. Well, I mean, part of the thing is, yes, risk is about reducing overall loss, but it's not to reduce loss of a percentage in a targeted group within a targeted group. We need to go ahead and change as broad a perception as possible. And this is where disciplines like organizational psychology, behavioral psychology across the entire organization, not an individual. Even people say, well, psychology is important to understand. Psychology, and I'm a psychology major, is the study of the individual. And it's relevant if I go to every person and say, let me know what your personality type is so I can understand what motivates you, how I should approach you, what type of information, in what way. An awareness person generally does not have the ability to do that. An awareness person has to give a program that's going to have the broadest impact as possible. What you've really kind of uncovered, for me anyway, is that there's a kind of a continuum as, as someone who's out there in the market, often often having conversations with security people about various aspects of cybersecurity, including awareness training, you have a kind of a continuum of, of people, or, or call it a maturity curve, and, and they're somewhere on that maturity curve. Now, the people who probably left most on the maturity curve don't even recognize the need for it. But just a little bit to the right of that is the group of people who recognize the need, but they've got cyber insurance, so they're just doing it purely for compliance reasons. And then all the way over to the right is the stuff that we're kind of talking about now. How do you kind of talk to organizations and say to them, listen, you can't just be doing this for compliance reasons alone because you're wasting a huge opportunity. What's the conversation that you yeah. should be having? So I remembered your question and organizations that are most um, appropriate, and this goes into what you're saying. 
Organizations that seem to be most effective are large banking organizations and others because they make the should into a must. They realize, for example, if somebody gives up a million records of financial data, it could be a multi-billion dollar loss. So they, they do have it well. But to your question, um, when you're doing this, I mean, frankly, I had my own company that focused on security awareness, but more the human process driven thing. And I realized there were like two thirds of the CISOs out there who were never going to be my customer because they looked at, okay, when they wanted to know what I did, they're like, okay, could I see a video sample? I'm like, I don't have video samples. I work with other vendors and give you the best one. They're like, okay, never mind. I'm like, I could get you samples if you give me background that I would recommend. They're like, oh no, we just want to see the samples. I'm like, and in that case, there is an important because something that is a must is compliance. And unless somebody goes ahead and realizes that human risk, because one of the problems we have to face is an actually true statement that no matter what you do, some user will screw up and click on a phishing message, for example. And that is 100% accurate. And you should not challenge that. What you should, however, challenge is the fact that all security countermeasures fail, that for that user to fail, the entire anti-malware would have had to fail, the entire security mail gateway would have had to fail, your entire perimeter security would have had to fail. And so now if the user fails, that's just one-tenth of the problem you have. But that still is a risk reduction tool. That still, if we take, for example, and this is not a good percentage, but let's say we take a click rate down from 10% down to 3%, which sounds awesome. They're going to be like, oh, well, there's still 3%. You only need one person to fail like we all hear. Actually correct. However, you have decreased your risk by, uh, by, sorry, for essentially 300%. Ira, if we start with you first, and Duane, if we come to you next, how can organizations empower people across the business to care about this topic, to care about the impact they can have, and, and to, to pay attention, I guess, and to really lean in? Well, I really hate that question, and let me tell you why. <laughs> because that is implying security is a should. We're here to encourage people to do what they should do. What happens if somebody doesn't fill out their time card or, well, sorry, I'm old. What happens if somebody doesn't fill out their time on the computer system to record that they work the required number of hours? They don't get paid. Here we're saying, please, it's we would really appreciate if you don't ruin our entire network and cause us a billion dollar loss. That's not the way it should be done. Security, it should be embedded that much like filling out a time card properly, much like not stealing from the company is proper, much like reporting a potential threat is a problem, your job does include cybersecurity. And minimally, if somebody is not in possession of critical information, it should they should be made aware of a good awareness program that attackers don't go directly to the crown jewels 99% of the time. They, they go specifically to get a foothold. You as an employee are a foothold inside the organization to allow for a further attack. And if you slip up, if you need motivation, yes, you will be blamed for, or you will be considered the source. I'm not saying blame per se, but you will be considered the source of a potential 
organization-threatening incident. And if that's not important enough to you, perhaps you should look elsewhere for employment. But either way, we expect those people to fail. Either way, we expect those people, even if we embed this to them, there's another concept that I once heard and I write about, which is called the compliance budget, where people have a given amount of time to do their required things, like comply with their job position, and sometimes they're going to have competing priorities, like I've got to run to a meeting, but I've also should lock my computer. Do I want to be late to this meeting with a critical customer or do I want to spend the extra 30 seconds being late to log my computer off or whatever it is? So there are things that users are going to do that's not there. And again, it's all about risk reduction. That's why you have data leak prevention. That's why you have all the things after a user clicks. But you need to stop saying, oh, we need to convince our users to do the right thing. It should be that's part of their job. Dwayne, what, what is your thoughts on, on that topic? Yeah, I actually agree. I mean, a lot of a lot of the people, a lot of the customers we deal with, you know, as Ira so rightly states, they dance around, you know, the, the subject, which is you should do this as part of your job spec. And they try and do, they try and do this as a, you know, a cultural thing that we need to get behind this notion of being aware around cyber. But you know, it's it's incredibly difficult to foster culture because CIOs don't invest budgets in culture. They invest it in measurable outputs and things that they can see the return on investment on. So if it's not at the forefront, you know, as Ira says, it becomes increasingly difficult to get people behind it. But with some consequence, you know, these things do typically, you know, tend to pick up quite quickly um, because people are being measured on it quite, you know, with a very close lens. Let me give an example. So I do espionage simulations where I go into companies and rob them blind. And one time I went into a company and I robbed them blind. The CEO said, we're going to make security important and we want you back in six months. Came back in six months. It was worse. But before I left, the CISO had me go talk to one admin and find out because he said he wanted to find out what I did to him. And the, the admin was like, okay, why me? I go, well, proverbially, you had all the money. And he's like, okay, I get that. He's like, and then I told him what I did, how I did it. And then he's, I go, now I want to ask you a question. Why is it worse now than it was before? He's like, oh, that's easy. Because when you came, the CEO put out a message saying, oh, we had security tests. We failed miserably. Security is important, blah, blah, blah. He's like, what do you do when you get a letter from the CEO that everybody got? He's like, I have one here. We are, we are reinforcing the importance of, you know, of condemning sexual harassment. Guy goes, I look at that. I agree. And then I put it to the side. You know, we are trying to save the company money. I look at that. I agree. Something to the side. Then he pulls up another document. He goes, this is from the physical security. You know, and then he goes, this is what happened with your security. But here's a document from physical security. The company was a Southern California company where they have nice decorative rocks outside the windows so that they don't have to put grass outside the windows and save water, not, you know, watering lawn. And he's and we and he goes, we had an issue of with a lot of smash and grabs where people would take the decorative rocks, pick them up, throw them through the window, grab the computer and run. 
He's like, what happened was the physical security manager about the same time the CEO put out a message, put out a message and said, we have had a series of smash and grabs. What is now going to happen is if you have a window office at the end of every evening, your shades will be put down, your lights will be turned off, your door will be locked. You are responsible for that. Your manager is responsible for that and ensuring that you comply. We will have guards do rounds to ensure that the, everybody's in compliance. You will be warned on the first violation. You may suffer disciplinaries on the, uh, disciplinary action on the second or third. And smash and grabs went completely away. Why? Because they said specifically what the problem was, specifically what the requirements were, what the, um, what's the consequences were, as was mentioned before. And then they everybody followed it. And yes, they probably had to give one or two warnings the first time around, but people did that because the issues became obvious. Cybersecurity incidents, consequences to an organization have become obvious and we need to impart, here are the requirements. Yes, there are potential consequences because it is a business critical issue. I'd actually like to challenge both of you on that because I don't think anybody disagrees. In fact, I really like the concept of should uh, versus must. Um, but I think the critical part here, and we've had pre previous guests on the podcast say that it's better to lead with a carrot than the stick when it comes to employees reporting any potential cybersecurity mistakes they might make, all of those kinds of things. Clearly, there's a good way to do must and a bad way to do must. How do you get this right and you don't alienate your, your employee base? Because let's be honest, they're there to do their day job, not to keep the company secure, first and foremost. Well, I, I sorry, I take uh, I take issue with that because part of doing your job should include security responsibilities. It should include, for example, physical security. You know, you don't say, oh, well, I'm not, it, it, no, there's no document that says I can't steal everything. But, you know, I mean, there's no it it's, should be part of your job that protecting the organization in a variety of ways is fundamentally considered your job. However, um, going back to the point, and it's sort of like there's a concept in safety science. In cybersecurity, we act like we're the only discipline in history that ever had to deal with human error and the like. We're not. Safety science has had to deal with it for centuries. And there's the, you know, the old school of safety science used to be like, you know, they study how people injure themselves on the job. It used to be like, you know, up to 50 years ago, why was that person stupid enough to get themselves killed? More recently, they started the new school of safety science, which essentially said, if a user is injured, that's a failure of the whole system. And yes, there are some people who get blamed. And yes, you do need to blame people when blame is attributed. And but what is blame? What is the attributable blame? There's the concept in safety science of a just culture. A just culture says you need to provide people with how to do what they need to do, you know, give them in the information. You need to provide them with the resources to do it correctly. You need to also not overstress them in such a way that they are encouraged because of the work environment to do things against the ways they're supposed to be doing. And in that case, then you don't blame them. If, 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 if you, sorry, 
But if you give them all the capability, yes, you can blame them. If, for example, and I'll just use this because I should, you know, I should stop here. But for example, if a user accidentally clicks on a phishing message because a computer lags, no, you don't blame them. But on the other hand, if a user brings in a USB drive to listen to music, or in one case I had to deal with, a user was a security guard who wanted to watch movies late at night. So he downloaded software that essentially bypassed the virtual private network of the system and downloaded a virus that ruined the security software. Yes, you blame them to the hills. There's a difference between somebody with clear policy violations for whatever reason and somebody who's doing their jobs otherwise sufficiently, but for whatever reason, something fails. You can't expect perfect perfection, but you don't expect you don't accept flagrant violations either. Okay, so I take your point on uh, flagrant violations. And Dwayne, since since you agreed with Ira earlier, I'm going to I'm going to put the challenge to you. Is um, let's go to the gray middle there. So flagrant violations, I don't think anyone will disagree with. But let's look at URLs. Um, were designed to be clicked on. Uh, documents were designed to be clicked on and opened. Yet we're telling users all kinds of things, really telling them to go against that whole way that they've actually, you know, operate normally. And suddenly we're saying, don't do this, don't do that. How do you get around that kind of a challenge with users? So I get that if you're downloading, um, uh, pirating movies and doing all of those kind of things, that's fairly easy to get to the flagrant violation line. How do you get to that gray middle and then still make users do things that are safe? It's easy, Brian. I think if you send out an email that says, please don't click on dangerous links or open malware bound attachments, I think you've got the problem solved, right? I mean, that's how we expect it to work. So if it was that easy, you know, I, I'd, I'd argue that, you know, no one would ever do anything bad, but it's really that, that therein lies the rub itself. You know, how do we stop users doing the wrong thing on the wrong link and the wrong thing on the wrong attachment? And that's, that, that's for me, a mixture of, prevention it's a mixture of your 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 actual stable of technology and for the, the the awareness training product in itself is again it's a single component in that strategy in ultimately getting to the point of aiding a user to identify what's bad and what's okay to interact with so there is no silver bullet i don't think um but but you know it it, it does come down to using as many tools as you have up until that point of failure Maybe Ira, if we come to you, how do we encourage employees then to bring that to the table so the company or the organization is able to respond as quickly as possible? Well, this comes down to, again, whether you foster a just culture. And what I mean by that is, you know, the principle that people feel safe. I actually worked with an organization. It was a, um, um, well, there's a lot of them, a petrochemical type of organization. And they actually encourage their employees to self-report safety violations on themselves. Like they wanted to know what were the near misses because they looked at a near miss as as important as an incident itself because that allowed them to know where other vulnerabilities might lie that they need to proactively mitigate. So they said, here's the thing. In the first place, if you report an incident, you will never be held I don't want to say accountable, but you will never be punished for reporting an incident. You know, for example, if like, you know, somebody says, well, I was trying to steal this big bucket of chemicals. And then in the process, I tripped over the step. You know, that's obviously 
you know, report tripping over the step, why you were doing that becomes questionable. Be, however, they adequately encouraged people to report incidents and they looked at a self-reported incident with cash awards, much like an incident of another potential safety hazard. So they actually rewarded people for even self-reporting. You should make users aware. If something does happen, we're gonna be able to track it back. It's better if you tell us than if we find it out after the fact too. Because if you tell us, it's a get out of jail free card to use the monopoly term. I think we could discuss this for a long, long time because there are many interesting points and, and fascinating pieces of information that both of you have brought to the table. And I'm sure our listeners have been hanging on to every word, but unfortunately we, we don't have too much more time. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We always like to end our episodes by asking our guests three simple questions. If you were to look back and speak to your younger self, what insight would you wish you'd learned sooner? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are so many different things. Um, I, I mean, if I were to look back and focus on insight, there are jobs I'd say, well, maybe I should have taken that one and so on. But, you know, it's, I, I, this is cliche, but I really try not to look back. I just try to go ahead and use it as a learning experience. Absolutely. And Dwayne, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I also try and look forward. I think one of the biggest things, and I, I, as cliche as it also is going to sound, and perhaps Ira and I can start our own, own podcast on cliches. But one of my one of the biggest cliches is to find purpose in what you're doing and jump out of bed, kicking your blankets off and saying, like, I really believe in what I do. And I wish I learned that sooner. You know, a job shouldn't just be a job. If you like fundamentally believe in what you're doing is bringing purpose to an organization in any flavor, whether it be sales or product management or from a CISO's perspective, if you believe that what you're doing is in, is in the right interests of you know your own purpose, I, I think that's something that a lot of people need to really laser focus on early in their careers, because it really does give you a lot to focus on moving forward in the in a, in a professional environment. And I think uh, some things are cliched uh, because they're true. Um, something we also love asking our guests about because we get some really good uh, good answers sometimes um, is what they're reading or listening to at the moment. So, Dwayne, is there anything that you'd recommend uh, for our listeners? Yeah, so two two books that I'm currently going through, the first for the second time and the second because I, I actually watched a TED Talk, was Ray Dalio's Principles. Um, I think that's one of the most amazing books I've ever read on how to kind of manage mistakes you've made in, in any kind of case, whether it be professional or personal and how to really learn from them and apply the, the learnings from them. And the second book from, from a product management perspective is the book uh, Inspired by Marty Kagan, um, which is really a, an incredibly insightful book on how to build tech products that customers love and really get down to the objective building journey of, of building tech products. And I, I really, really recommend that. So on my side, um, I, I mostly read personal development books. I mean, the latest one I picked up on a on a trip back from Jordan because I ran out of movies to watch was um, Think and Grow Rich. And then the other one, I guess people would consider more on the professional note. I just I don't I haven't really started that. It's been sitting there like probably two thirds of the books I ever buy, but Atomic Habits is one I intend to read at some point in the very near future. <laughs> Me too. And so looking towards the future, uh, Ira, we'll start with you. Where do you think we'll be with cybersecurity awareness training in the next, say, 12 months? And 
will there be any trends you think will spot? Unfortunately, I don't perceive anything. I mean, I started talking like some vendors are kind of like inching their way towards like behavioral cybersecurity. They're using it as a buzzword, you know, where they're measuring behaviors and so on. They haven't necessarily changed. They just give better metrics. And Dwayne, from your perspective, from that future looking perspective, where do you think we might be in 12 months time? Uh, I mean, I, I would hope and pray that it's like around an era of efficacy, you know, like how do I prove, you know, tangibly within my organization that my program is delivering results in the right areas of where I can spot risk. And, you know, that's a challenging outcome for most vendors to look at because it's an incredibly difficult thing to start tangibly measuring. You know, you can't measure culture, but you can at least at the fundamental level, um, you know, measure behaviors or inputs or outputs. And if that starts to decrease and it's, you know, it can be directly attributed to an awareness training program, that can only make an administrator's job a lot easier, especially when reporting up the chain on a ROI to the executive stakeholders. Where can our listeners learn more about you, Ira, and where can they get hold of your book? So shameless plug, um, you should buy, you can stop stupid for the high level perspective of the topic of addressing human related errors and risk. And that's available hopefully on Amazon and better bookstores everywhere. And as well, security awareness for dummies is the practical implementation of what we've been talking about. And that's again available on Amazon and elsewhere. But anyway, just Ira at irawinkler.com will get me if you want me. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. It really has been an insightful discussion and so much information that we can take home. And, and I'm sure our listeners have really, really enjoyed the thoughts that you've shared with us today. And thank you also so much to all of our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today. Until next time.